Welcome back to Black Goddess Healing and Manifestation. I'm Dr. G, and I am here with you on, I guess we would call this Valentine's Day Eve. And I decided to give you a little kind of bonus episode because we had a wonderful panel. Um, I guess it was a week or two back. I'm losing track of time living in this virtual Zoom world. Um, But that panel discussion we called Let's Talk About Sex. And it was really a good and informative conversation around sexuality, um, which I am sharing with you all uh, in this episode. And I'm probably going to, you know, I'm I'm finalizing the recording now. I think I'm going to do two parts because those panels are two hours long. So I think I'm going to break it up for you all to have part one and part two. And um, I hope you enjoy. But before we get to that, I thought this was a good time to talk about the different forms of love that you may experience in this life. And I wanted to start with soulmates uh, because that's a term that's thrown around a lot. And maybe you already know this information. Hopefully I'm going to give you some tidbits that you might not have known. But soulmates, I I personally believe they exist. You know, I believe that we have uh, not just one, but possibly multiple soulmates in a lifetime. And they come in various forms. And it does not always have to be a romantic soulmate. Um, It could also be loved ones and friends. And, you know, it's just that deep connections that you have with people. Um, I feel like people that, you know, it's just even if they're not your blood, you just feel this connection to them like they are family Um, or when you meet a life partner and it's just it feels right you know it feels like it's meant to be you have that same chemistry vibration happening um that they could be a soulmate and it doesn't mean it's always positive either you know we uh, come into these different experiences in life journeys and I believe in having an agreement, an idea before we enter. And so when we do, um, you know, we we have experiences that are supposed to happen and some that aren't supposed to happen. And sometimes that may mean things that we're trying to push and force in life aren't meant to be and it doesn't feel comfortable. But that's part of the plan, right? And our soulmates are part of that journey and those experiences with us. And so... It's not always about positive and negative. It's just the, you know, how it's supposed to go. And, you know, when you think about the term soulmate, it could be a partner, as I said, a child. Some people say it could be animals that you're connected to. And so, again, this is a very, I would say, dynamic term that we try to put into one box and it doesn't exactly work that way. So, Uh, I'm going to encourage you all that may not have a life partner, uh, especially, you know, everyone talks about Valentine's Day and it's a bit commercialized, right? But reflect on the people in your life that may be a soulmate and they may not be physically there with you either. And that, you know, could be challenging for some. Um, I know that it's it's tough for a lot of people during this time and especially when you have 
something like Valentine's Day come around and you see posts and people talking about their loved ones and their connections and but you know I think we have to look at love differently that there are other opportunities around us to experience love now here's the other opportunity self-love and I know that sounds cliche I do Um, but it has to start there you have to be available for love to receive it and it starts with you and you are going to if you can't trust and love yourself then how can you have that connection with someone else right so you have to first trust yourself and then do some things you know to treat yourself I, I will tell you I took a nap today without television without social media just a nap Okay, I wasn't even really that tired, but I said, I've just been pushing myself the last couple of weeks, just projects after projects and meetings. And I said enough, you know, I need to quiet myself and just relax. And then I did a facial. I had a spiritual bath. Um, Yeah, do that for yourself. It's of course, we want to give to others and love the people that are around us, but start with you. Okay, here's the other form of love, um, connections and relationships I wanted to share. And that is twin flames. And twin flames, it's, it's a pretty complicated, I think, um, conversation to have that I'm just going to skin the surface. You know, I always tell you all that, that some of these topics go a little bit deeper, could be a whole almost workshop for some of them versus this short podcast. But when you think about twin flames, uh, think about a soul that's divided into two halves. And those two halves are each in a different person. Right. So, and that's, you know, that could be odd to think about, I know, but they say that twin flames are kind of one of the same, one of the same soul. And so when you do encounter a twin flame, that, that experience is quite interesting. You know, it could be that the similarities just line up in a very eerie kind of way. It feels almost like, like I know this person, um, that, and not just knowing like oh, I, I think have I met them before no it feels like um I know you on a very deep level like almost as if I know myself yeah like I said we don't have a lot of time to talk about all of <laughs> the details of twin flames sometimes they say that twin flames aren't you know, supposed to be together in certain lifetimes, but ultimately towards the end, they're supposed to unite and um, finish the journey together, if you will. Um, But sometimes, you know, a twin flame, uh, it's it's just, it's too much of the same. Um, You know, it's not meant to be. Sometimes there's some social implications of the twin flame. There could be age differences, people already being in committed relationships, just various things that doesn't allow twin flames to be together in certain lifetimes. Makes me think about that song, Erica Badu's song. And I just love Erica, by the way. But anyway, (laughs) Erica Badu's song, I guess I see you next lifetime. That's what I think of when I think about a twin flame. And even in that song, um, she talks about her current um, partner, as if, you know, it sounds like that could be a soulmate. So 
it can get kind of complicated, right? Um, you know, when you think about that. But we have to realize that these things are, even though we may have these connections, um, sometimes they're just not meant to play certain roles in your journey at this time. Um, but it is an opportunity to think a little bit deeper in terms of relationships. So here's the one thing I, I want to close with is that if you are, you know, with a partner, and I feel like this is a message coming through, this always happens to me, but <laughs> let me just put it out there. So if there's someone that, you know, maybe you're with a partner that um, you're not supposed to be with and you know it and you feel it, right? That you don't leave space for that soulmate to come in or even for your twin flame to come in right that you are filling up the space is already occupied and so you have to make room for those things to occur and we know it we know it on a soul level when you encounter these people um, that are meant to be and those that aren't and again even when you encounter a soulmate let's just say that doesn't mean that you have to be with them because you feel a connection. Does it have to be romantic? Sometimes it's better to be friends, you know? Um, so again, I, I just felt that message coming through for someone that maybe you need to hear, but love thyself first, trust thyself and be appreciative of the relationships around you. And those who are with a life partner enjoy the day um, but listen to the conversation we have first <laughs> that talks about safety we we go beyond that okay we do have doctors on the panel um, and we do talk about some things you need to be concerned about when you're intimate with individuals but we even go into pleasure and we we talk about how to safely do that um, using certain things to assist you with that <laughs> how to do that safely, making sure that you clean it with the right products. I think you catch my drift, right? Um, but all those things um, are in the panel discussion that I will be sharing with you in this episode. Um, come on over also to blackspirituality.org where you can touch base with me. I will even chat with you, send me a message. And I also want to invite you all onto Instagram. You will see that I am kind of, I'm going through a little bit of a change. And I guess we would say branding, uh, rebranding, if you will. And so you'll start to see something shift um, in terms of my um topics we're still going to talk about the spiritual stuff don't you worry you know, that that is me but I'm going to be incorporating a little bit more of the science um, and how those things connect uh, to spirituality so science and spirituality and I'm going to be showing myself a little bit more you know in a respectful way I didn't like how I said that um <laughs> I will be showing my face more I'm engaging more so I have a consultant Keon with Millennial Soul Food he has a podcast if you're not familiar with Millennial Soul Food podcast and he's been helping me break out of my shell a little bit I mean I'm not shy I just um 
yeah, I've been a little social media shy. I've been very protective of my energy, very protective of my space. And I don't always let people in that easily. So he's been helping me kind of navigate that, how to do it in a way that's comfortable, but also that is allowing me to share the gifts that I've been given and that I'm supposed to share with the world. So watch me on Instagram, um, you know, Dr. G, PhD. You can look up Black Goddess um, Healing and Manifest. Black Goddess Healing and Manifest is how, um, you know, you can find me on Instagram or just put in Dr. G, PhD. Yeah, so that's that. I'm going to leave you to enjoy the first part of our panel discussion and I hope to connect with you all offline. Take care. Tonight we have a wonderful panel as you heard. Um, they they are going to bring a wealth of knowledge and I think before we get into the conversation and honestly I didn't share this with the group but I, I think this is a part of our tradition now is that we kind of start with a moment of grounding ourselves. So I, I will have to speak for my, my former work and being a practitioner. It's very important that we develop a safe space before we go into this conversation. We have so many different topics. Um, our team, our panelists have provided questions that are a little bit outside of the box that I think this is going to really hit home for a lot. As it hits home, we understand triggers could occur, right? We understand that some may have experienced some things that may cause um, uncomfortable moments for them. So I just want to take a moment, um, no matter you know what type of practices we have, just to ground ourselves a little bit and to take a nice deep breath, um, you know, to make sure that we are in that space of welcoming. We want to make sure that we are respectful for all that are going to enter into this. I do want to give us a little bit of sound so that we can ground ourselves before I invite the panelists to introduce themselves. Thank you. I won't take up all of your time because we can do that all night. Um, so I, I want to go ahead and ask um, first for Dr. Brown just to say hello and if there was anything else that you wanted to share with our audience. Um, hello, everyone. I'm excited to be here. Looking forward to meeting some of you through your questions, and I hope I can offer you some information back. Thank you very much, Dr. G. Thank you. All right, Dr. Khan. Dr. G, thank you. It's uh, an honor to be here with this panel and with this audience. And uh, thank you for the kind introduction there, Dr. Freeman. Uh, looking forward to this conversation. I think uh, it's extremely important to discuss important matters like this. I'll just say that there's very little that uh, I know that I haven't learned from my patients uh, and my colleagues. So I'm looking forward to learning from the panelists and from the questions in the audience. So thank you very much. Okay, last but not least, Imani. Hi, uh, good evening. Uh, thank you for getting to this opportunity to get to be part of this panel. And I'm also looking forward to getting to connect with people through their questions um, and getting to be part of this space. So looking forward to hearing from you all. 
Thank you. And so we do encourage you to submit questions and Shai will share a little bit more about that. We're live on Facebook, but we have other options for you if you're not comfortable with submitting questions live. So I'm going to go ahead and pass it to Shai. Thank you. Hello and welcome everybody to our second the Dembe Web Exchange. Um, tonight we're going to talk about sexual health. So we're going to touch base on his, hers, and theirs. Um, we ask that you all like get into the discussion, ask questions. If you want to be anonymous, you can definitely inbox uh, Queen V in regards to your questions and concerns. Like when that way we can go ahead and present the questions to the panelists. So uh, any question is welcome. Anything you want to know, anything that you were ever afraid to ask, we ask that you just go ahead and ask tonight because you have some great panelists that can um, provide all the answers that you need. I'm going to be your moderator tonight, and we're excited to get started. And if I may, before you jump into the first question, Shai, at the end of this, we will provide telephone numbers for crisis in the event any of you experience a crisis from this actual webinar. Okay, so I guess we're ready to get started. Thumbs up, yes? All right, so the first question, Dr. Khan, um, we wanted you to touch base on the three C's and explain a little bit what, that, that, what, what that's about. Sure, Shai, thank you so much. Uh, so the three C's is something that I, again, I've learned from my, from my patients and colleagues over the years in terms of where, what kind of sexual health questions we typically get. And I, I think one thing is really important to think about is um, folks do want to talk about sex. I think you appropriately mentioned that this is really about everything you wanted to know about sex, which may, maybe we're afraid to ask. It's the title of a famous 70s book as well. Um, you know, my three C's that, that I talk to my colleagues and patients about really have to do with first C is really about um, consent and comfort. And it could just as easily stand for communication. And so consent is you know, obvious to most folks. Make sure that there's communication between uh, us and our partner or partners about what's about to occur. There's no such thing as over communication in, in sexual health. And that's really important in intimacy. Um, I find that one of the one of the areas that we don't talk as much uh, about is the comfort part. The comfort part, we assume that sex is always defined the same with the people who are involved in that particular sexual encounter, um, but it's not. There are all kinds of ways to define it. And I think that's really important to talk about as well. And in terms of comfort, um, one of the things we don't talk about is, is this comfortable? Does this feel good? Does this feel right? And that's really important to talk about as well. And I'm looking forward to questions around that. Um, the second C is around uh, contraception. Uh, contraception is certainly for cisgendered couples, cisgendered heterosexual couples, uh, can be an important piece to talk about. Again, glad to take questions about that. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's an important piece of where folks' heads are at when they're talking about sex and sexual health. And third C is conditions. There are all sorts of sexually transmitted infections and conditions. Sometimes we start talking about them. But I think perhaps as sexual health educators, maybe we you know, we could start talking about the fun stuff too, about what makes sex pleasurable, not just what the conditions are. But that being said, STI prevention is critically important. Um, 
Infections of all sorts are important. And in the time of COVID, I'd be remiss in not adding the fourth C, which is COVID-19, which is that prevention uh, against COVID. And in the time of COVID, what does intimacy look like? How do we protect ourselves getting vaccinated and so forth? Uh, how critical that is to maintaining good sexual health and intimacy. So those are kind of the three or four Cs, if you will. And again, looking forward to uh, having questions around those. Thank you so much, Jess, because like, um, I think a lot of times, like we, when you think about sex, we don't think about the comfort part. Like you are always told about contraception, I can't even get it out, contraception and things of that sort, but there's a lot of things that we don't ask questions about, so we don't get a lot of time to touch base on it. And when we go to the doctors, we are afraid to ask questions. Um, the next question that we have for the entire panel, um, we wanted to talk about non and uh, sexually transmitted infections, how to tell the difference. I can maybe jump into that and, and perhaps other folks will add their experiences as well. Um, I think there's that's a good question around how do you know something is sexually transmitted or, you know, or not? And I think it just depends, very broadly speaking, sometimes it just depends where the actual infection is, for example, and sometimes you can't really tell. For example, if somebody has a fever, it could be due to any kind of infection, sexually transmitted or non-sexually transmitted, and that can actually be a diagnostic dilemma for physicians as well to figure that out. There can be all sorts of sources of infection, from a sore throat to a urinary tract infection to a pelvic infection to traditional sexually transmitted infections. Within sexually transmitted infections, we typically look for, in this case, for example, areas where there's sexual contact, where there's intimate contact, for example, oral to genital contact, uh, genital to genital contact, anal to genital contact. So those sexually transmitted infections can be just skin infections, or they can manifest as skin findings, and then you look for what that might be underlying. For example, folks have heard about HIV causing AIDS, uh, about syphilis, about gonorrhea, about chlamydia, about HSV, about the herpes simplex virus, for example, and about HPV. Um, and these are all different conditions. They can manifest differently. Uh, probably impossible to cover all of them uh, in, in one talk. But, uh, you know, the, the important thing is if you find something that seems different about your body, even if it's an area where traditionally we don't either look or think to look, uh, maybe our partners have noticed something, it's really important to have that conversation, either with that partner, of course, first of all, or with your own physician and say, this is something I noticed with my partner, or this is something that's happening with myself. And I think your family physician uh, or gynecologist, um, in the case of um, uh, a female partner, perhaps, they'd be happy to to address those concerns. Uh, again, happy to take questions around that and, and learn from other panelists as well. Just a comment on that. I think it's important to remember to know your body. So regardless of your gender, it's important to know what you look like. So for a woman, get a mirror, take a look, see what it looks like. So you can tell the doctor if there's something different going on. Same thing with a male. You need to look at yourself, examine yourself, whether you're circumcised or not. You need to take some time to do some self-care and understand. Smells are also things that alert you to like, maybe you need to talk to a doc doctor. If it's not what it normally smells like, even urine. You should be in touch with your doctor or begin to watch it to get a better sense of what to explain when you talk to your healthcare provider. So it's not only the STIs that we hear about, that we read about, it's personal hygiene and the care for your own body that also makes a difference in terms of your sexual health. 
And do you all encounter individuals that have shame around these symptoms that they may be seeing um, that may lead to a lack of proper care because of the shame that they may be carrying? And can you touch base on that a little bit? I think, uh, uh, Dr. G, you bring up a really good point about shame in general, specifically applied to this. You know, we seem to have certainly depending on cultures, be uh, conditioned uh, pretty much generally to not talk about sex very much, to not talk about our bodies very much. Dr. Brown's point about just knowing yourself is so critical. That's the start of overcoming shame, to recognize that it's actually we're, we, we're owners of our bodies and ourselves, uh, and we have agency over that at the very least, and recognizing that as a critical first step. Um, so yes, of course, we, we do encounter that. We encounter uh, perhaps shame, perhaps discomfort, perhaps not knowing the vocabulary, perhaps not knowing the medical terminology for something. And I have to say, don't worry about it. Say it. However, trust me, your, your physician, your family physician has seen and heard everything, and they will not be put off by however you decide to put it, what we want to hear from you about your conditions. I, I will say, I, from my experience, I tend to find, interestingly, more of that shame sometimes in younger patients. And if we're talking about women, for example, more from younger women, um, there's nothing that my older African-American patients in particular, female patients, have not told me. I mean, uh, we could write a textbook. And uh, there's, I, I'm really glad to see that because folks depend on the elders in the community to be able to communicate values to them, such as uh, openness and such as not having shame. Uh, so I, I want to echo Dr. Brown's point there as well. I just want to comment on um, what Dr. Khan said about um, members of the community and our families. A lot of our shame comes from what we've been taught, what we've learned from our families. The black church plays a big role, and not only the black church, other um, religious um, institutions have said things that cause people to feel shame. Um, they've identified parts of um, religious works that, that support what they're saying. So things like experiencing pleasure and sex for some other reason than procreation. So some of these things do cause people shame, um, not only in their behavior, but also in terms of being able to explain that something's going on, you're hurting, you're uncomfortable, um, and having the courage to share that with the physician or, or healthcare provider. So yeah, shame, I think, plays a big role in a lot of what we do. Um, people who are in the LGBTQI community also have experienced years of shame in terms of just being in love with someone. So yes, I think, uh, Dr. G, shame plays a big role and it shows up in a lot of different ways in the community. Um, I agree as well. I kind of wanted to piggyback on what you're speaking about, Dr. Brown, when it comes to shame um, and thinking about the, the conversations that we have with ourselves when having um, this topic of STI and kind of normalizing it in a way because um, uh, thinking about it, like getting an STI is not necessarily an abnormal thing. It's something that happens very often, but because of that cloud of shame, it does create like that internal negative narrative from like the outside systems um, that have created that negative narrative and conversation around it. So also, um, I guess, thinking about the clients that I support, and it can be very traumatic to 
catch uh, an STI, especially when it's something that's that was outside of your control. Um, so I think kind of normalizing um, STIs as just another area of health is something that would be really helpful for people when we're discussing this topic. Thank you. Yes, and I know for years, like um, anything sexual, sexual was um, presented as STDs, sexually transmitted diseases, and that word was so like horrible. Nobody wants a disease. It's like automatically you're thinking it's like okay, it can't be cured, and it's like now it's uh, sexually transmitted infections. So like um, you know, we also wanted to touch base on the different types of infections that could come about. Um, you know, we know about BV. A lot of people don't know about that. You know, um, yeast infections are something that's always advertised and things of that sort. But what other um, STI infections should we um, be looking out for? Sure. I think there's a, a couple of, you know, a couple of major ones, uh, certainly lots and lots of them. It depends on the environment, depends on on where we are. But but in our area, still in the United States, uh, the ones we worry about the most, honestly, HIV AIDS still remains at the top of the list. And of course, uh, HIV is something one can contract through non-sexual means as well. Contact with uh, blood and body, body fluids of any sort can lead to HIV infection, not with saliva, interestingly, it cannot be transmitted by kissing, but with sexual uh, sexual exchange of bodily fluids, uh, typically. Um, there's uh, also a variety of you know advances we made in the world of HIV, HIV in terms of uh, PrEP and PEP, you know, pre-exposure prophylaxis and post-exposure prophylaxis, uh, medicines you can take before having uh, sex and after having sex as well. So we've come a long way in, in many of these. Um, one may have heard of gonorrhea and chlamydia. Chlamydia remains one of the most common sexually transmitted infections in women, for example. And uh, there's a simple test for these conditions. Uh, it can be a swab. It can be a urine test. In the case of HIV, it's a simple blood test. Uh, so I encourage folks who are, uh, who are concerned or even those who aren't concerned. I sometimes honestly take the judgment out of STI uh, screening. Once a year when someone comes in for their annual uh, examination, we get a standard panel of, you know, I don't want to question who you've been with, who your partner or partners have been have been with. We're going to get an annual test. It'll be HIV, gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis, and we'll talk about that. There are a couple ones I just want to touch on, which I think are not as mentioned usually, uh, perhaps because there's no blood test for them that are reliable. One is herpes simplex virus, HSV. And there's a couple of kinds of HSV, of herpes. Well, there's the kind that causes the, the mouth sores, cold sores, and that's one kind, and that's the less harmful kind, but there's a relative to that which can cause similar kind of sores in the genital area. And the challenge with this one is that it's really difficult to get rid of. And once you have outbreaks, then you can prevent them by being on medications, but your partners are susceptible to, to catching that as well. Lots and lots of folks are carriers for herpes simplex for HSV, and there's a way to prevent the outbreaks. Again, as Dr. Brown said, examine yourself and know what your body looks like and be able to look out for new things. Uh, the other one is HPV, human papillomavirus. Very different, but it turns out this HPV um, really gloms on, especially to young women's cervixes uh, uh, inside the vulva. And so during sex, it can actually get transmitted from one partner to another, typically, in this case, heterosexual partners from a male to a female. Great news is that there's a vaccine against it. So if one gets one's boys and girls vaccinated uh, anytime after the age of 13, up to the age of 26, three-shot vaccine series, it has nearly 100% uh, prevention against HPV, which can go on to cause cervical cancer. 
So this is one of the very, very few cases we have essentially a vaccine against a kind of cancer, major killer of women worldwide, unfortunately. So just a couple of things I want to uh, highlight there, and we can talk more about them if uh, folks like as well. Okay, awesome. I, I have one question for you um, in regards to the prep in regards to HIV. A lot of the commercials touch base on it being uh, more effective in men. Is that prep for both male and female? Uh, PrEP can be used by any partners um, for as pre-exposure and post-exposure prophylaxis. It's typically marketed more towards towards men, um, and uh, regardless of when whether that male is as uh, uh, a male who has sex with other males or a male who has sex with females or or both, it can be protected as well. But um, you know, we have uh, wonderful HIV community resources in Delaware for those of your listeners who are in the area. We have an HIV community community program. And after this uh, show, if folks want a link to that, happy to put that up there as well. Uh, PrEP and PEP are very interesting. They do not mean one should not use barrier methods of contraception. I realize they use a double negative there. So what I'm saying is use a condom, kids, um, you know, regardless of, uh, regardless of whether you're on PrEP or PEP. Okay. okay. And Can then I one... Shai real quick? Yes. Um, just because I had a thought that came through in regards to the infections and you know you get to a stage of life you know dr khan mentioned um older women being more comfortable talking about it but the younger ones not so much and so i wonder and amani mentioned something that triggered this thought as well like how do you help them work through that you know we get to a point where oh yeah we can talk about it don't worry about it but they do right so if they come back positive for something how do we address that you know how do you navigate around that for all of you for you for the panelists It's a good question. I, I I've called my my friendly uh, you know colleagues in in social work and in health psychology as well to help. So I noticed that uh, Imani is going to say something. So I don't want to jump in. Please please go ahead. I'll pick up after that. Oh no, it's okay. Thank you. <laughs> um, I was just going to mention again, like the normalizing at this conversation and kind of um, um, I guess supporting them in adjusting to I guess through the grief and loss process. Cause when you've contracted something that maybe you're not necessarily able to get rid of anymore, it can feel like a sense of loss because this is something um, that you're kind of like losing the old identity of self in a way, or um, um, the loss of like the uh, autonomy of your body. Is that the word I want to use? But um, I guess supporting them in that way by creating safe spaces and also normalizing like this is not um, it's not a dirty thing. And I think when you think of like STIs and things that you catch, people automatically stigmatize you to be something that's dirty or unclean. Um, so like I said, back again, just trying to normalize things for people and that um, again, it's just a part of your health. And I know that it'll be an adjustment period for them. Um, when it comes to that. So again, just dismantling those internal uh, systems that maybe they got from like outside influences that have caused this like sense of shame. I think uh, Imani, as you mentioned, it's so important to normalize, normalize things and get away from that sense of shame. You know, shame, guilt, and judgment, uh, I think are uh, such critical barriers to our collective understanding and to our health as well. The judgment part is equally important. Sometimes you, one gets an STI diagnosis and you think instead of, you know, shame, which is not appropriate anyway, you think jump to another inappropriate piece, which is judgment, saying, oh my gosh, my partner gave me this infection. And 
Sure, that may have been the case. It may have been reactivated from many, many years ago. It may have been this partner. It may have been a previous partner. It, there could be a variety of circumstances around that. So yes, of course, we generally advocate testing off partner or partners, uh, in this case, regardless of gender. Um, but it doesn't have to be the partner that one was with. And one does not have to jump to judgment about what that partner is doing at somebody else that caused one to become infected. So I just want to you know, add that uh, these infections sometimes come up after a very long time, and we just catch them at a, la at a later stage or later date. Uh, so just to be careful about that. I think we probably have viewers saying, oh my God, thinking about the arguments they may have, <laughs> right, with their partner, and, and it may not be that partner. Wow, thank you for sharing that. I'll pass it back to Shai, just wanted to interject. And now, and then the other, um, we have a question in regards to like, um, when we spoke about like um, the different types of herpes, like, you know, one could, uh, you know, present itself as cold sores, the other could present itself as genital sores. Can one cause the other in regards to sexual activity? Like if someone had a cold sore and performed oral sex, could that turn into the genital uh, type of herpes? It's a good question. So we used to think that the HSV-1, which is the cold sore one, and the HSV-2, which was the gentle one, that they were, they were pretty different. Turns out there's actually overlap between the two. So HSV-2 can cause cold sore-like conditions, and HSV-1 can cause gentle uh, uh, sores as, as well. So uh, I think the general rule is, for those of you who don't go around with a microbiology swab in your pocket to swab your partners' mouths and, and gentles, um, to simply avoid contact when there is something that doesn't seem right. Again, I want to reflect back on what Diane said initially, is examine your body, but also examine your partner's bodies. I was talking with someone the other day about, you know, did you actually look at your look at your partner? In this case, it was a, a cisgendered heterosexual uh, female. I said, did you look at your, your male partner before having intercourse with a new partner? And she said, no, I never looked down there. I said, you know, it's actually probably not a bad idea, um, you know, we all literally and figuratively have to take sex out of the dark, you know, regardless of how one enjoys it is different, but I think you know what I mean, that we have to bring it into the light, so to speak, the light of knowledge, but also the light of simple examination. And if your partner has an open sore of some sort, you know, probably not a great idea to go rubbing that open sore on some part of your body's mucous membranes, whether that be your mouth, uh, vagina, penis, anus, any part of your skin. Um, it could be a completely unrelated condition, not sexually transmitted, for example. Could be a random skin infection, staph infection. Still means that you probably should be really careful uh, around that. So I think that's a good general prevention and, and hygiene tip. Okay, awesome. Because I know sometimes hair bumps can uh, look a little scary. <laughs> you know. All right, so we do have some more questions and things here that we had, uh, you know, come up with before the um, the broadcast. And, you know, we wanted to talk about other vaginal conditions. So, um, you know, besides like menopause, that was something that we all heard about. Like, um, I used to fear that once I hit 40, I was going to get menopause. <laughs> I just thought it hit at 40. But I, I, there's a lot of other things out there like um, ovarian cysts and fibroids. Like, could you touch base on what causes things like that in a female anatomy? Uh, sure. Uh, glad to uh, uh, start that and uh, other folks can jump in as well. So in terms of menopause, um, yeah, 40 would be a little bit early uh, for for menopause, for, for essentially defined as when one stops having a period um, because of the uh, stopping of ovulation. Um, 
but uh, menopause also is a is a it's a continuum. It doesn't happen at any one age, and there are changes that our bodies go through both both men and women uh, throughout their lifespan. So there's no one magic age where this happens. And for all of us who've gone through certain types of aging processes, you know, hair doesn't just start falling out at the age of 35 or 38 or something. You know, it's a it's a gradual process. Uh, the same can be said of a variety of other changes, sexual changes, libido, interest, desire, what we like, who we like it with, uh, things of that sort. This is a continuum. So menopause is very similar to that as well. There's also been people sometimes joke about the condition called manopause uh, for for males, and there's some interesting talk around what that what that looks like. Um, but I won't get too much into that. Your question, Chai, was also around um, ovarian cysts and fibroids. Um, ovarian cysts can sometimes exist. So the ovary tough to sort of do this without drawing the anatomy out. For those of you who know me, you know that I would like to draw stuff out on a piece of paper. Uh, but the ovaries are basically located somewhere in the, you know, in the mid-abdominal area, a little bit towards the back. And sometimes when folks complain of pain during certain times of the month, women complain about that, particular times of the month, during ovulation, during menstruation, we usually look to see what's going on. Is there a concern? And sometimes we'll do an ultrasound, uh, which is a simple non-radiologic test, not not involved in, not involving X-ray radiation, uh, non-radiation test, uh, to see if there's something going on there. Sometimes one can pick up cysts. They can be uncomplicated, requiring no intervention, just a wait-and-see approach. Sometimes they can be complex. Sometimes they can require more stuff, and it's a case-by-case basis. No real indication of what what one can do to prevent them. Honestly, there's there's nothing uh, beyond uh, you know sometimes bad luck that causes these things uh, like uh, like kidney stones. Um, same for fibroids. Fibroids are typically found in the uterus, you know, muscle areas in the uterus which become bigger and usually cause painful periods. Again, the moral of the story is if somebody's having painful periods or painful anything during any time of the month. Uh, you know, examine examine oneself, look at oneself, keep a record of what's happening, and discuss that with your healthcare provider. Now, um, in regards to like our, our transgender um, viewers, uh, would they be infected? Is there any way that they w- would be affected by like any of these conditions? It's a good question. So transgender viewers, absolutely. Anyone who um, anyone who has the various body parts can be affected by them. So it really depends, you know, at that point, what the anatomy is from a very simple, you know, biological level. Uh, biological level. So if one is, you know, for example, uh, female to male transgender, um, you happen to have, still have ovaries at that point. Absolutely, um, one is still at risk for ovarian concerns. Um, if one is, um, you know, male to female and has not had uh, um, the necessary feminizing surgery, for example, one has testicles. At that point, you could be subject to testicular cancer, and a self-examination would still be really important. So it's really more about, in this case, it's really more about the the bits and pieces that make us up, and to figure out what those bits and pieces are are subject to. We have colleagues in the community who actually specialize in uh, medicine f- uh, for transgender individuals who are very skilled and sensitive around talking about issues in a, uh, in a manner that's respectful. And again, I would say start off with just saying what you look like, what your body looks like, what you feel, and then have a conversation with the provider and take it from there. Uh, just one piece I'll add is it's really important to engage with our nurses, our social workers, and in, in the entire continuum. This isn't just a doctor-patient thing. It's a whole team thing. So I usually, again, rely on my, my colleagues and other specialties and disciplines to weigh in and give me their advice as well. 
I want to chime in really fast because I got a, a message um, and it's a question that is related to STIs and it's probably um, myth related. I know we didn't get there yet, but this person asked during this time, um, they said that they were told that chlamydia and BV are not always sexually transmitted. Can someone please speak to the truth about that? I can start with uh, talking about, so, so chlamydia is caused by a, a bacterium that's called chlamydia trachomatis. And um, uh, typically sexual transmission is the way that chlamydia is, is transmitted. There'd be, you know, is it possible for it to get from one body part to another without having intimacy or sexual, sexual encounters? It would be very challenging to do that uh, through simple touch, for example, through normal, uh, non-intimate touch, through kissing, hugging, and so forth. Chlamydia is typically not transmitted through that. Uh, so chlamydia is pretty much usually a sexually transmitted, intimate, um, uh, gentle-to-gentle transmission condition. Um, in the case of bacterial vaginosis, or BV, BV simply happens because um, uh, of a to put it simply, an overgrowth of the of the bad bacteria uh, in the vaginal area, and uh, the good bacteria sometimes uh, sometimes aren't there quite as much. That can actually happen through a variety of ways, uh, not necessarily sexually transmitted, and it can manifest itself as somebody earlier pointed out. Um, sometimes one can have a certain odor, and some folks can think, "Wow, I smell funny down there," and that's that's different. Or some folks actually think, "Well, maybe that's the way things are all the time." And both male and female partners have misconceptions of what even normal, uh, normal smell, normal hygiene is supposed to, supposed to be. Um, there can be increased discharge with bacterial vaginosis with BV. Um, in both of those cases, there are antibiotics um, that can that can help. In the case of chlamydia, typically we would do partner testing as well and make sure that the partner is not infected. And Dr. Khan, um, I want to chime in on that as well. Just from my medical background, prior to moving into the social the social sciences, there is also um, a condition called group strep B. Mm -hmm. Am I saying that correctly? Can you can you give us a little bit of education on that? I think that's something that's common in women, and maybe we don't know that it's common. We're not yeah, sure. Absolutely. So yeah, group B strep uh, or GBS, uh, we do we do worry about that sometimes. You know, it's, it's really came into importance more uh, in pregnant women. Pregnant women are actually uh, uh, screened for group B strep with a simple swab, and we do that because group B strep infection, when it uh, when it lingers, um, can actually lead to certain kinds of things like premature birth, for example, and, and other conditions. We typically don't screen asymptomatic women, women who don't have infection, don't have any risk factors, who are not pregnant. We typically don't screen them for GBS. So it really presents mostly in pregnancy. So can people be carriers of STIs and not know, just like with like chicken pox or even like, uh, you know, COVID, you don't know you have it and you're just spreading it. Is that something that's like typical? It can happen. Sure. Absolutely. Certain Certain conditions are just that they are almost by definition, like with the uh, with herpes, uh, with um, genital herpes. Once one has it, once one has an outbreak, one is essentially a carrier for life, unfortunately. Um, and that means that one may not have the outbreak, but you will always have the virus in, in the body. And so one is essentially a carrier all the time. And that's a great example, uh, shy of some uh, an STI that can be you can be a carrier for. You can also be a carrier for chlamydia not actually know it, meaning you would have chlamydia infection, but you would not exhibit the symptoms for it. That's really what 
I think the term carrier would mean in this case. Mm-hmm. In several other conditions, you can you typically will have symptoms of it, but HIV is another one. Uh, HIV, one can uh, one can have the HIV infection but not show symptoms. So mm-hmm. I prefer to think of it like that rather than saying if somebody's a carrier or not a carrier. I would say, well, you have the infection, but you don't have symptoms. And what that means to a partner is, hey, get tested ahead of time and and know your status. So we we talked a lot about and we can continue to though, but partners, but what advice, and I I wonder if Amani and Dr. Brown have worked with clients in this way of giving advice for self-pleasure. And as that might relate to, can you get an infection? Can you get bacteria? What's, what do you need to know about, is that important? Self-pleasure? I I know the answer to that, but I'm just (laughs) <laughs> I'm passing the, the ball. Um, you know, what do we need to tell people about that? What with uh, when we're talking to, for instance, our adolescents, and we, we talked about the shame, but when it comes to that piece of it, let's say even removing that and they're exploring, what do they have to know about perhaps, you know, being unclean and causing different things in their body that then could lead to a whole nother, you know, um, other issues. But I just wanted to pose that as we're talking about partners to kind of go a little bit more into self-pleasure. So Imani, you want this one? You can go first, Dr. Brown. <laughs> okay. Um, so I, I can't speak so much for youth other than I'm a believer that young people are safest when they are pleasuring themselves. If they are not pleasuring themselves, abstinence works, but there are also forms of barrier methods where they can protect themselves and other forms of contraception. But I think that um, um, young people do explore and it's absolutely healthy for them to explore, to know what it feels like to be pleasured, to know what parts of their body are their points of arousal. And I think that it's hard to talk to them about that because they're embarrassed to talk about it, to ask you. And plus they don't want anybody to know that they've already been experimenting. But I think it's also the way in which um, we approach young people when they share with us. Mm -hmm. If we're able to use some of those social work techniques and not let our face show our reaction, if we can talk about having um, the kinds of things that they can access that prevent infections, simple hand washing and um, making sure that if you are touching yourself, that for a female, that you're not touching your anus and your vulva or your clitoris, because those kinds of um, bodily fluids are not good mixes in terms of your health. and same thing with, with guys, like just being sure that if they are going to masturbate, that they wash their hands after and before. They can use a condom while they're masturbating if they feel that that's a cleaner way. It's important to also think about if young people or adults are um, practicing mutual masturbation, that there's some consideration for lubes and knowing which lubes are best to use when with that person. Some people are allergic to some lubes. So people should also get in the habit of trying things on themselves to see whether or not that's something that they can tolerate. So whereas pleasure is really important, especially in COVID. I mean, I I know my job, we're waiting for the COVID babies. We are just waiting for them 
because we know that's going to happen. But um, people need to feel um, some kind of connection. There's a thing called skin hunger that all human beings have, that you just have this desire to touch and be in close contact with someone else. And babies have that too. They have this um, need to be touched, to be held. And that's part of who we are as um, the human makeup. So yeah, I think it's important for people to understand how to safely pleasure themselves. And there are books. I know people say like, I don't want to read books. But there are tons of books that help people. And the internet is full with some good advice. I won't say everything on the internet is good. Okay. But there is some good advice that people can look for in the privacy of their own spaces that they can get this information and begin to practice. Sorry, you can go ahead. <laughs> oh, uh, sure. Uh, Iman, is it? Uh, were you going to go ahead? Okay. Uh, so I, I guess I just uh, I think Dr. Brown gave a, a really wonderful explanation uh, about this. So the only thing I, I would just you know really reinforces what you mentioned about safer sexual practices. Uh, I think masturbation and mutual masturbation are wonderful ways to be able to connect with with oneself and with your partner. Uh, the time of COVID has certainly uh, forced us to re-examine, no pun intended, intended uh, these practices. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I think we've come up with uh, creative ways uh, around intimacy as well. Um, masturbation is normal. Uh, virtually every human being has masturbated, will masturbate, and is masturbating. Um, so, you know, there's uh, that's completely normal to do. Uh, the the really main health concern I point out is that um, when uh, experiencing anal play and then gentle play, uh, penis or vulva or vagina, uh, that don't mix don't mix things between the body parts, uh, and that's simply because uh, anal anorectal bacteria don't mix well uh, with vaginal bacteria or with the bacteria that lead to inside of the penis as well. That that uh, tract can also get infected, so one just has to be careful. Um, so. You know that that's the same concept as wiping from front to back rather than you know back to front, not to have the the uh, anorectal bacteria come up. Uh, there are ways we don't certainly want to stigmatize any particular sexual practice and not consider any practice to be unhygienic. Any practice can be safe and any can be potentially unsafe. So uh, for those who um, uh, do, who like anal pleasure, anal sex, there are ways to do that safely, um, uh, and uh, we can certainly talk about that as well. But in terms of mutual masturbation, masturbation certainly a safer way to to do that these days, especially. And if I may jump in um, now, since we are on the discussion of masturbation, um, vibrators, hand hands, different ways. There are different ways to masturbate. Um, and either of you can jump in and answer this question. This is for my heterosexual community and my LGBTQI plus community. There are toys, dildos, uh, vibrators, anal beads. And I have clients that use different practices to keep them clean, right? To avoid bacteria, um, boiling them. Some, some use bleach, <laughs> some folks um, soap and water, some folks antimicrobial uh, cleanses. What is the, the best way and the most basic way to keep these toys clean if they are using them? Sure, I can just start from an infection pers uh, prevention perspective. Uh, just as one sterilizes or, or keeps any surface clean, uh, it, the, same, the same principle applies. 
one thing we sometimes don't think about it is what what impact will those cleansers have on the user's health? So just as with any cleanser, whatever one uses, the, the, the stronger ones in particular, bleach, for example, just be careful that the entire cleaner is off that product and it's been rinsed before use just with plain water because otherwise some of the residue from the cleaner itself could irritate very sensitive body parts of the user. So that's just something to, to mention. Kiana, you mentioned a critical point that the, um, the the toys that one might use for one body part generally keep it away from the other body part, for, for example. Sometimes, of course, that's not entirely possible. Uh, you can have dildos that are, that are used, for example, between two female partners. You might use them back and forth uh, between the vulva, for example. And, you know, these are folks who, um, uh, let's just say they've been tested ahead of time, they are safe, and that should be completely fine. Again, one should not uh, use them uh, alternatively between anal play and vulva play. Um, aside from that, the types of cleaners one typically recommends, alcohol-based cleaners do fairly well. And um, in the time of COVID, we've gotten pretty familiar with having alcohol that's above a certain percentage uh, to, to clean. So any kind of cleaning alcohol solution, the same type that you can use for your hands, they will do fairly well for, uh, for any products or toys. For toys, especially with beads, you know, got to be careful that they have a lot of little crevices. Especially the beads are strung together; they have other other things within them. Sometimes you might require certain disassembly of certain things to make sure they're cleaned thoroughly. But that's just kind of common sense based on kind of household cleaning practices as well. One applies the same; it works. Boiling alone, I'm typically not a huge fan of. Um, that can actually affect the product itself too. Um, certain things which are mechanical, they're not going to be amenable to immersing in water, for example. So I prefer a, a bleach-based solution uh, or uh, an alcohol-based solution for cleaning. Thank you. So I just wanted to jump in there with a comment about toys and lubes. So not all lubes go with every single toy. So you really have to understand what the product you're using is made of so that you use the appropriate lube. So there's water-based lubricants, and there's also um, lubricants that are, um, and I'm blanking on the name of the- Silicone-based. Um, Silicone-based. And so you really need to be familiar with your toy. And most of the time, the toys will give you that kind of instruction or information on the packaging, but you need to be familiar with what the product is in the store that you're purchasing to go along with this. And again, as Dr. Khan said, it's really important to understand how to maintain your toy um, and realize that sometimes you have to get rid of them and get other ones when you see like cracks or things that are not how they're supposed to look. So you need to look at your toys. Don't just like use them, clean them and put them away. Really examine them and understand how, um, how, how, how the product is actually working. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunities for people to take advantage of toys, um, especially as other ways of pleasuring themselves and pleasuring their partners. Um, and I think that some people haven't experimented because they're, again, that shame aspect, that embarrassment comes up. And um, there are so many places around nowadays that you can get this information without going and you could be anonymous, so to speak, to engage in that. But the most important thing is once you use a toy, you need to maintain it in a way that's safe for you, for your partner, and for your own health. Uh, the point, Dr. Brown, you made about lube, I think, is so critical. You mentioned that a couple of times, and I think it's really important. The, the, honestly, if I had to 
big what sing the single biggest aspect about pleasure which people people bring up and the single biggest uh determinant of of that it, it really is inadequate lubrication and um it is so important for 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 that and silicone based lubes tend to do in my experience better for many uh many many uh partners uh, and many practices um certainly for uh, anogenital use silicone based lubes tend to work better but you're completely right about um, uh looking at the particular partner their preferences skin types uh you know uh, reactions and of course if you're using any other toys as well uh what they will uh, what they will react well with so thank you for making that point so sorry, Shai, I know we have a list of questions, but I have a related question following up with this. Um, so when you think about, we're, we're talking about lube, there are certain medical conditions like medication, I think things that could affect, you know, your body as a whole, as well as age. And what would you have, what advice do you have to our older adults? And we talk, I mentioned the younger adults, the young adolescents, but the older adults, we, we think sometimes that they are like, asexual that they're not involved in any type of intimacy but they are so do you work with older individuals and how what advice do you give to them i'm sorry imani were you gonna jump in uh so i i think uh dr g you're you're, you're right this part of sometimes our somewhat ageist um uh you know perhaps society but certainly the medical system is not without blame for this um we typically don't do a great job of talking about taking a good sexual history um and i think certainly among older adults i certainly think there was a time when we didn't think that we thought sex stopped at a certain age and uh you know the joke is it always stops at a certain age which is five years past your age right so uh wherever you think it is it's not ours it's, it's somewhere it's someone somebody older than us um but older adults there's there's no cutoff point for sexual enjoyment. Um, I think the important thing is to define what sex looks like and what it might feel like and what one enjoys at certain times of your life. There are very few types of sexual activities one is physically not going to be fit for uh, when you're older. You can enjoy yourself as, as much or as little as you would like. Again, the simple considerations I would make, again, I have to go back to the loop point. Um, that's important. Vaginal dryness is, is real, can affect women of any age. And in fact, a little bit of lubrication will make things comfortable at any age in general. And so that's that's just helpful. And that's just talking about cisgendered straight couples. Um, certainly if uh, for straight couples or gay couples, LGBTQI couples who might engage in uh, anal anorectal intercourse, lube is not an option. It is in fact a necessity. Um, uh, the anorectal area does not have its natural lubrication. And so it absolutely needs it to prevent tearing and to in fact enhance pleasure for both men and women. So uh, that's probably the simplest uh, consideration I would give regardless of age. That is a lot of great information. Um, I, I've learned a lot just from that question because I am not a masturbator. I'm not nothing against anyone that does. I just just don't, and I think it, it more so has like it's because of the stigma of what it is, you know. So that that was great. I know a lot of listeners, uh, you know, they had probably had questions and were like, oh, "Okay, now I get it. it. It's not a bad thing." Um, before we go on to the next question, I just wanted to, you know, just make sure every panelist had a chance to touch base on the pleasure in sex um, of like masturbation. Also, the cleaning of your toys from what was discussed, I find that that's very important because I guess like you could still get um, BV or anything from your toys. 
Um, so Amani, is there anything you want to touch base on the sexual pleasure um, portion of things before we go on to any of the next questions? I was thinking about kind of when Dr. Brown was mentioning the skin hunger and just how pleasure is kind of the face of pleasure is a little different now because of COVID-19. So we're it's supposed to be quarantining anyway, and you're supposed to be hanging out in like your pod or group of people. So it can make uh, pleasure and intimacy and your sensuality look very different. Um, and I think that uh, something that really impacted a lot of people was the skin hunger piece when it came to intimacy. Um, but it also, with the when we were completely shut down, it kind of gave people the opportunity to kind of explore and their sensuality a bit more um, as well. So I guess um, thinking about when I don't know if anyone else had anything additional to add, but like supports for people who maybe are struggling with that skin hunger aspect um, and like other ways to kind of, I guess, create that space for yourself when you're not able to kind of connect with other people physically because of the distance. Um, I know that like, of course, like sex toys and things like that definitely have uh, increased a lot in purchases with the recent um, uh, break or the recent shutdown. Um, and also like a lot of creations of different apps and things like that to help you connect with partners from a distance um, to also like create um, a close, a sense of intimacy um, as well. So I didn't know if anyone else had any other ideas on Susie, <clears throat> how to, I guess, help support people with that skin hunger aspect. I think you make a really good point, Imani, around that. And uh, I guess if the broader question might be around, uh, you know, how does one maintain intimacy and that uh, connection uh, when you physically cannot meet, for example? And if you, if one thinks about it, one doesn't actually need physical contact um, with yourself or with anybody else to have an orgasm. And we know this from from the experiences of, especially around young boys, around nocturnal emissions or wet dreams. Um, one can have orgasm, one can come without actually having physical contact. So what we take that to mean is sex is really in the brain. It's really the most powerful sex organ we have is really our prefrontal cortex. Our, our brains are really important for this. And so when one is in the mood in, in the uh, for intimacy with a partner, um, one can engage in all sorts of non-physical touch activities that can feel very intimate. Um, we could even refine, redefine oral sex to be more the oral discussion, the talk. One can talk in intimate terms uh, with a partner. It doesn't have to be talking dirty. It can actually be talking intimately. And uh, having having a sexy playtime with your partner over the phone, for example, can be very exciting, whether or not one is engaging in mutual masturbation at the time. Having a video chat, one you know certainly talks about that. Used to have kind of a more kind of a skeevy you know look to that uh, before before COVID. You know you're having a video chat with somebody, but um, there's nothing shameful about this at all. And certainly with partners who are unable to meet, a video chat is uh, an interesting alternative. Allows one to explore creative side, perhaps. So you know it doesn't quite solve the uh, skin hunger piece, Imani, that you mentioned. But I I would argue the skin hunger piece is really about the hunger of the senses. It's about hearing, about feeling, about sensuality, and sensuality senses are about more than just touches one of the senses, but we have others, sight and uh, and smell and hearing as well. So we can certainly use those as also. 
before we leave that topic, because that's my area of work, um, sensory, everything sensory. And so, you know, one of the, the things that I usually tell folks is, you know, touch is one of the first and last senses. You know, you can lose your eyesight, you can lose your sense of smell, unfortunately, we now discover a sense of taste, right? But touch is one of those things that, that last. And so I, you know, I do think that there are ways to do that. I love that the comment, Dr. Khan, about it doesn't, you know, doesn't require the, the sense of touch, right? With just your mind is so powerful. But even just in addition to that, that safe touch, you know, I, I had a conversation with my husband and I said, our kids aren't seeing family as much. You don't get that hug from the grandparents for your aunts as much. And so we make it a point on a daily basis to give safe touch by hugging our children so that they are getting that, that input as much as we, we can. And I attended a workshop when they, they had everyone hug themselves. So there is a place of doing a nice lotion massage, or, you know, really treating your body that is intimate and not as so much. It doesn't always have to be sexual, but it can be an intimate self-love um, that you can do, especially as Shai mentioned, that may not be your thing, but you can give yourself some input to your to your skin and even your older adults, if you have them around, give them a nice lotion massage on their hands and you know that touch that they may not be receiving. So just wanted to add that and I'll pass it back to Shai. <laughs> that is awesome. And then uh, like taking notes, I'm over here taking notes on my notepad. So I would encourage you all to download uh, Duo uh, WhatsApp and uh, FaceTime to your loved ones so y'all can have some sexual sensory, uh, you know, when you're apart. <laughs> and just to add to that, Shy, there is an app. It's called Rosie. Rosie. It's called Rosie. It gets those intimate and sexual, um, sexy stories that couples can read or an individual can read alone if they are just looking for that um, intimacy or sexual aspect that's missing. Um, the Rosie app. It's high. I highly recommend it. Why? Okay. I'm writing that down on my list of things. Like what you're hearing? Stay tuned for part two.